Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome back. Today, we are continuing the real story of Tombstone, Arizona. Last week, we heard the story of prospector Ed Shifflin and his improbable find in the Mule Mountains of southeast Arizona that led to a silver rush, the founding of a town, and ultimately made Ed a rich man. Well, this week, we fast forward the story a couple years and read the chapter Tombstone's Wild Oats, from Frederick Bechtolt's When the West Was Young. This story centers around the larger-than-life character of Wyatt Earp and the gunfight at the O.K. Corral. But there is really so much more to the story. This tale truly is a wild ride. So hold on while we hear the story that made Tombstone a legend. In the good old days of Indians and bad men, the roaring town of Tombstone had a man for breakfast every morning. And there were mornings when the number ran as high as half a dozen. This is the way the old-timers speak of it. And there is a fond pride in their voices when they allude to the subject. The same sort of pride one betrays when he tells of the wild oats sown by a gray-haired friend during his lusty youth. For Tombstone has settled down to middle-aged conventionality and is peaceable enough today for any man. Ah, but in the early 80s, Apaches were raiding, claim jumpers were battling, road agents were robbing stages, bad men were slaying one another in the streets, and taking it all together, life was stepping to a lively tune. Geronimo's warriors were industrious, now they would steal upon a pair of miners doing assessment work with inside of the town. Now they would bag a teamster on the road from Tucson or raid a ranch or attack laborers who were laying the water company's pipeline to the Huachucas. Hardly a week passed, but a party of hard-eyed horsemen rode out from Tombstone with their rifles across their saddle bows, escorting a wagon which had been sent to bring in the bodies of the latest victims. In the two years after the first rush from Tucson to the rich silver district which Ed Shifflin had discovered, there was much claim jumping. And claim jumping in those days always meant shooting. Some properties were taken and retaken several times, each occasion being accompanied by bloodshed. 
Surveying parties marched into the foothills of the Mule Mountains under escort of companies of riflemen. In more than one instance, they laid out boundary lines and established corner monuments after pitched battles, each with its own formidable casualty list. What with the murders by the Apaches and these affrays, together with such natural hazards of disease and accidents as accompany any new mining camp, the Boot Hill graveyard out beyond the north end of the wide main street was booming just like the town, and now there came a more potent factor in stimulating mortuary statistics. The bad men took possession of Tombstone. They came from all over the west, for railroads and telegraph lines were bringing a new order of things from the Missouri to the Rio Grande. And those who had lived by the 45 hastened to ride away from the site of jails and churches, seeking this new haven down by the border. One by one they drifted across the flaring southwest deserts, from California, Montana, Colorado, Kansas, Texas, and New Mexico, with their grim mouths tight shut against all questions and their big revolvers dangling beside their thighs. The hair of some of them was gray from many winters, and their faces deeply lined, and some were boys with down on their smooth cheeks. But once his hand started moving towards his pistol, every man of them was deadlier than a bull rattlesnake at rutten time. No man challenged them on their arrival. The town was too busy to heed their presence. The one-story buildings which lined the streets were packed to the doors with customers. Saloons, dance halls, and gambling houses roared on through day and night. The stores were open all hours. The wide sidewalks under the wooden awnings which ran the length of every block were crowded from wall to gutter with men intent on getting wealth or spending it. The bad men mingled with the sidewalk throngs. They dropped into the birdcage opera house where painted women sang songs and voices that clanged like brazen gongs. They took their places before the gambling tables of the Crystal Palace where girls were oftentimes to be found dealing pharaoh. They joined the long lines before the bars and drank the stinging whiskey which the wagon trains had brought from Tucson. And they met one another. It was like the meeting of strange dogs who bristle on sight and often fly at one another's throats to settle the question of supremacy. Their big caliber revolvers spat streams of fire in the roadways and bellowed in the dance halls and gradually among the ranks of the survivors there came a gradation to their badness. Several loomed far above the others. John Ringo, Prank Stillwell, Zwing Hunt, the Clanton Brothers, and Billy Grounds. They were the he-wolves. And there was Curly Bill, the worst of all. He might be said to rule them. They settled down to business, which is to say they started to do the best they could for themselves according to their separate capacities for doing evil unto others. They rustled stock. They drove whole herds over the boundary from Mexico. They pillaged the ranches, which were now coming into the adjacent country, stealing horses, altering brands, and slaying whoever interfered with them, all with the boldness of medieval raiders. They took a hand in the claim-jumping. They robbed the stage. 
Hardly a day passed without a holdup on the Tucson Road and when the railway went through on the road to Benson. Shotgun guards and drivers were killed. Occasionally a passenger or two got a bullet and the bad men spent the money openly over the bars and tombstone. Then the Earp brothers came upon the scene. From this time their figure looms large in the foreground. Whatever else may be said of them, they were bold men, and there was something Homeric in their violence. Wyatt, Virgil, Morgan, and Jim. The first three were active in the wild events which followed their incumbency to power. California knew them in their boyhood, and during their manhood years they wandered over the west, from mining camp to Cowtown until they came to Tombstone from Dodge City, Kansas. They brought a record with them. Back in the 70s, in the time of the trail herds, Dodge was a howling cow camp. There was a period of its existence when the punchers used to indulge in the pastime of shooting up the place. But there were a great many of these frolicsome riders, and too much wanton revolver shooting is sure to breed trouble if it's combined with hard liquor. The prominent businessmen of Dodge watched the hectic consequences of this lawlessness over their pharaoh layouts with speculative eyes and came to the conclusion that killings were becoming altogether too promiscuous. The town, they said, needed a business administration, and forthwith they elected Bat Masterson as marshal. He established and enforced a rule which amounted to this. If a man pulled his gun, he did it at his own peril. Whoever fired a shot within the town limits, whether he did it for sport or murder, faced arrest. Resistance followed. There were nights when the main street echoed with the roaring of firearms. But by the force of his personality and by his remarkable ability at the quick draw, Bat Masterson subdued the rebels. It came about that of what killing was done, he did his full share, which greatly diminished the death list. Wyatt and Virgil Earp succeeded Bat Masterson in this office and carried on its administration with a boldness which left them famous. With the coroner behind them, they were the lords of the high justice, the middle and the low, and they sustained their positions by good, straight shooting. At such times as they were not performing their functions as peace officers, they were dealing pharaoh. And when the imminence of a less interesting era was made apparent in the dwindling of the trail herds and the increase of dry farmers, they left the good old cow town along with many other professional gamblers. They arrived in Tombstone in the early days when the outlaws were rampant and they began dealing pharaoh in the Oriental. They found many a friend and some enemies from those years in western Kansas among the more adventurous element in the new town. Former buffalo hunters, teamsters, quiet-spoken gamblers, and two gunmen sat down before their layouts and talked over bygones with them. There was an election at about this time. Virgil was chosen town marshal, and Wyatt got the appointment of deputy United States marshal soon afterwards. Old friends and new rallied around them. Of the former was Doc Holliday, 
a tubercular gunman with the irascible disposition which some invalids own, who had drifted hither from Colorado. Among the latter were the Clanton brothers and Frank Stilwell, who robbed the stage and rustled cattle for a living. John Ringo, who was really the brains of the outlaws, and Curly Bill, who often led them, are listed by many old-timers among the henchmen in the beginning. It was a time when the old spoil system was recognized in its pristine simplicity. If you trained with the victorious political faction, you either wore a star or had someone else who did wear a star backing you. If you trained with the minority, you were rather sure, sooner or later, to have your name engrossed on a warrant. In such an era, it was well to vote wisely. Else, in the vernacular, you were short in your hometown, which meant you could not go back. How much the Earps knew of what their henchmen did is beyond the telling in this story. An official history of Arizona published under the auspices of the state legislature and written by Major McClintock, an old westerner, states that first and last they were accused of about 50% of the robberies which took place in the town. It is, however, altogether possible that their cognizance of such matters was no greater than many a city official today holds of the crimes committed in his bailiwick. When one comes to analyze police politics, he finds they have not changed much since the time of the Crusades. Desire for power has always blinded reformers to the misdeeds of their followers. One thing is certain, the Earps did protect their friends, and some of those friends were using very much the same methods which the savages employed in making a living. To a certain extent, this was necessary. What one might say was the highly respectable element of the town was busy at its own affairs. Mine owners and merchants were deeply engrossed in getting rich. And unless he liked gunfighting, a man would have to be a good deal of a busybody to give the town marshal anything more tangible than his best wishes in the way of support. It was up to that official to look out for himself. At any time when the complications followed his attempt to arrest a lawbreaker, he could depend upon the average citizen to get outside of the firing line. And the gunfighters were eager to get into the game. They were right on hand to make a stand in front of the enemy if need be, but preferably to murder the foe from behind, which was ever the way with the western badman. There were determined men of another breed in Tombstone and the surrounding country, men who had outfought Apaches and Desperados on many an occasion, dead shots who owned high moral courage. Such a man was John Slaughter, who had established his ranch down on the Mexican line and had driven the Apaches away from his neighborhood. But these old-timers were not enlisted under the Earp banner, and the town's new rulers had only the other element for retainers. So now, Frank Stilwell robbed stages on the Bisbee Road until the drivers got to know his voice quite well. And he swaggered through the tombstone dance halls, bestowing the rings which he had stripped from the fingers of women passengers upon his latest favorite. Ike and Billy Clanton enlarged their herds with cattle and horses from other men's ranges and sold beef with other men's brands to tombstone butchers. And taking it all together, the whole crew from Doc Holliday down 
did what they could to bring popular disfavor upon the heads of the new peace officers. But if their followers were lacking in the quality of moral courage, that cannot be said of the Earp brothers. And not long after they took the reins in their strong hands, an occasion arose wherein they proved their caliber. Wyatt in particular showed that he was made of stern stuff. It came about as the result of the reforms under the new regime. After the manner of their Dodge City administration, the brothers ruled Tombstone. They forbade the practice of shooting up the town. He who sought to take possession of a dance hall according to the old custom, which consisted of driving out the inmates with drawn revolvers and extinguishing the lights with forty-five caliber slugs, was forthwith arrested. To ride a horse into a saloon and order drinks for all hands meant jail and a heavy fine. To slay a gambler or make a gunplay in a gambling house when luck was running badly resulted in prosecution. Virgil Earp attended to these matters, and after several incidents wherein he disarmed ugly men whose friends stood by eager to let daylight into the new marshal, he owned a certain amount of prestige. It is only fair to remark in passing that he had a disposition, in ticklish cases, to shoot first and ask questions afterward. But that was recognized as an officer's inalienable right in those rude days. Now this new order of things did not meet universal popular favor in Tombstone. There were always three or four hundred miners off shift in the streets, and while a large percentage of men were peaceable men, there was a boisterous element. This element and the cowboys who had been in the habit of celebrating their town comings after the good old fashion felt resentful. An occasional killing of one of their number with the invariable verdict from a carefully picked coroner's jury, quote, met his death while resisting an officer in performance of his duty, end quote, made the resentment more general. The recalcitrant said that Tombstone was being run by a gang of murderers in the interest of the gamblers. Opposition to the administration began to crystallize. Things reached the point where in a 20th century community, reformers would be preparing to circulate recall petitions. But in the early 80s, they did things more directly. And instead of the recall, they had the showdown. The malcontents eagerly awaited its coming. It came, and its origin was in Charleston. Charleston was 11 miles across the hills from Tombstone, down by the San Pedro River. There was a mill there, and the cowboys from the country around came in to spend their money. Jim Burnett was justice of the peace. Early in the town's history, he had seceded from the county of Pima because the supervisors over in Tucson refused to allow him certain fees. Hereafter, so he wrote the board, the justice court in Charleston will look after itself. Which it did. Once the court dragged Jack Harker from his horse, when the enthusiastic stockman was celebrating his arrival by bombarding the town, and fined the prisoner fifty head of three-year-old steers, and once, as a matter of record, the coroner's jury, under his instruction, rendered the verdict, quote, Serve the Mexican right for getting in front of the gun, end quote. 
Things always move swiftly in Charleston. There is a tale of a saloon keeper who buried his wife in the morning, killed a man at high noon, and took unto himself a new bride before evening. If that story is not true, it is at least indicative of the trend of life in the town. And to Charleston came those followers of John Ringo and Curly Bill who did not get along with the Earps. Several of them became men of influence down here on the San Pedro. Hither flocked those boisterous spirits who craved more freedom of action on payday than the mining town afforded. Guns blazed in Charleston whenever the spirit moved. The young fellow who was ditch tender for the company had to give up his lantern when he made his nightly trip of inspection, because as surely as the light showed on the hillside, there was certain to be someone down on the street who could not resist taking a shot at it. So while dissatisfaction was crystallizing among the miners of Tombstone, a keen rancor against the Yerps was developing over by the San Pedro. This was the state of affairs when Johnny Behind the Deuce brought matters to a crisis by killing an engineer from the mill. Johnny Behind the Deuce was an undersized, scrawny specimen of the family which is popularly known as Tin Horn. A sort of freelance gambler, usually to be found sitting in at a poker game. The engineer was a big man and abusive. There was a game in which these two participated, and when he had lost his wages to Johnny behind the deuce, the engineer sought solace first in verbal abuse, then in physical maltreatment. Whereat Johnny behind the deuce resolved the situation and shot him. Charleston's constable took the slayer into custody. The rustlers and other exiles from Tombstone knew the prisoner for a friend of the Earps, so they decided to lynch him. They sent one of their number to get a riata for that purpose. The constable learned what was going on. He commandeered a buckboard and a team of mules, put Johnny behind the deuce aboard, and drove the animals on the dead run for Tombstone. When the man who had been sent for the riata returned, the rustlers set out after the prisoner and found they were five minutes too late. They saddled up and started in pursuit. The road wound along the lower levels between the foothills of the Mule Mountains. There were two or three dry washes to cross, some sharp grades to negotiate, and several fine stretches that were nearly level. A rough road admirably suited for making a wild race even wilder. And this was a wild race. The constable and the prisoner were just getting their team nicely warmed up when they heard a fusillade of revolver shots behind them. They glanced over their shoulders and saw more than 50 horsemen coming on at that gate, which is so well described in the vernacular as burning the wind. From time to time, one of these riders would lean forward and throw down his six-shooter. Then the occupants of the buckboard would hear the whine of a forty-five slug, and a moment later the report of the distant weapon would reach their ears. The mules heard these things too. What with the noise of the firearms and the whoops of their pursuers, they were in a frenzy, and they threw their long ears flat back and entered into the spirit of the occasion by running away. 
The constable, who was a cool man and a good driver, centered his energies on guiding them around the turns and let it go at that. Now, as the miles of tawny landscape flashed behind them, the two fugitives saw that they were being overhauled, and the pursuers found that they were gaining. Their yells came louder down the wind. They rowled their lathered cow ponies, and they drew closer to the buckboard. The constable negotiated the dry wash near Robber's Rock on two wheels, and as the light vehicle was reeling along the easy grade beyond, the prisoner took another look behind. He told his captor that the wild riders were not much more than 400 yards behind. They came to a stretch of level road. The mules were doing a little better now, and they clattered down into the next dry wash with an abandon which all but ended matters. The outer wheels went over the high-cut bank, but by the grace of good luck and marvelous driving, the buckboard was kept right side up. And now the lynching party, who had made a shortcut, appeared between the rolling hills, not more than 200 yards behind. Johnny behind the deuce reported the state of affairs. The constable answered without turning his head. Looks like we're up against it, kid. But we'll play it out as long as we got chips left. Three miles outside of Tombstone stood an old adobe building where an adventuresome saloon keeper had installed himself a barrel of that remarkable whiskey known as Kill Me Quick and sufficient arms to maintain possession against road agents. The sign on this establishment's front wall said, Last Chance. And this is the last chance to hear from our sponsors, so let's give them a moment. All right, now back to the story. And it was a lucky chance for Johnny behind the deuce. For Jack McCann, who owned a fast mare, was exercising her here this afternoon in preparation for a race against some cow ponies over on the San Pedro next week. He had trotted her down the road and was about to head her back toward the saloon for her burst of speed when he saw the buckboard coming over a rise. The mules were fagged. The constable was lashing them with might and main. The lynching party were within a hundred yards. As Jack McCann surveyed this spectacle, which was so rapidly approaching him, the constable waved his hand. The situation was too tight to permit wasting of time. McCann ranged his mare alongside the buckboard as soon as it drew up, and before the breathless driver had began to explain, he cried, Jump on, kid! Johnny behind the deuce leaped on the mare's back. The constable pulled off the road as the lynching party came thundering by with a whoop and a halloo. He peered through the dust which the pony's hooves had stirred up and saw the mare fading away in the direction of Tombstone with her two riders. It was nearly four o'clock in the afternoon. That hour was the dullest of the 24 in the gambling houses. For the evening shift was on its way to work and the day shift had not yet come off. The Earps were dealing Pharaoh in the Oriental. Into this peaceful quiet came the sound of hoofbeats from the street. It stopped abruptly. Two men burst through the front door on a run. The players looked around, and the Pharaoh dealers dropped their right hands toward the open drawers where they kept their loaded pistols. Jack McCann and Johnny behind the deuce had arrived. But before the prisoner finished his story to which he did not devote more than 20 words or so, 
a man ran into the Oriental with the tidings that the miners, who were coming off shift, were arming themselves as fast as they left the cages. The rustlers had ridden up the hill and were gathering reinforcements. Wyatt Earp at once took charge of the affair. He was a medium-sized man with a drooping, sandy mustache. Well, close up, boys, he said. The showdown had come. Wyatt, Virgil, Morgan, and Jim took counsel. Doc Holliday advised with them. A handful of their supporters stood by awaiting their decision. All others left. The neighborhood was no healthy place for non-combatants. The Oriental Gambling House stood on Tombstone's main street at the intersection of a cross street. Because of its size, it would be a hard place to defend against so formidable a mob as this which was now moving down the hill. Several doors north on the main street on the opposite side, there was a bowling alley. Its narrowness gave that building a strategic value. They took Johnny behind the deuce there and set guards at both ends. Wyatt Earp remained alone out in the middle of the main street, just below the corner. He held a double-barreled shotgun over the crook of his arm. The ugly sound which rises from a mob came into that deserted thoroughfare. The swift tramp of many feet, the growl of many voices. More than 300 miners, the majority of whom were armed with rifles from the company's arsenal, and the 50-odd members of the Charleston lynching party swept into Tough Nut Street, turned the corner, and rushed down the cross street toward the Oriental. They reached the intersection of the main street. As they faced the closed doors of the Oriental, their left flank was toward Wyatt Earp. They filled the roadway, and the front ranks surged upon the sidewalks toward the portals of the gambling house. Then, someone who had seen the prisoner taken to the bowling alley shouted the tidings. The throng changed front in the instant and faced the solitary man who stood there a few yards before them. Wyatt Earp shifted his shotgun into his two hands and held it as a trap shooter who was waiting for the clay pigeons to rise. In the moment of discovery, the mob had checked itself. Confronting him as one man confronts another when the two are bitter enemies and the meeting is entirely unexpected. There followed a brief, sharp surge forward. It emanated from the rear ranks and moved in a wave toward the front. There it stopped. And there passed a flash of time during which the man and the mob eyed each other. That was no lynching party, such as some communities see in these days. Its number included men who had outfought Apaches, highwaymen, and posses. Men who were accustomed to killing their fellow beings and inured to facing death. And the hatred of the Earp brothers, which had been brewing during all these past months, was white hot now within them. Come on, called Wyatt Earp, and added an epithet. Above the mass of tossing heads, the muzzle of rifles were bobbing up and down. The trampling of feet and the shuffling of pack bodies made a dull undernote. Shouts arose from many quarters. Go on, get him! Now, boys! 
Wyatt Earp threw back his head and repeated his challenge. Come on, he flung an oath at him. Sure, you can get me. But the first one makes a move, I'll get him. Who's the man? Those who saw him that afternoon say that his face was white. So white that his drooping mustache seemed dark in contrast. His eyes gleamed like ice when the sun is shining on it. He had the look of a man who has put his life behind him. A man who is waiting for just one thing before he dies. To select the ones whom he will take with him. The cries behind redoubled and the crowding increased in the rear. Some leaped on the backs of those before them. But the men in the front ranks, some of them were bold men and deadly, withstood the pressure. They held their eyes on that grim white face or watched the two muzzles of that shotgun which he swept back and forth across their gaze with hypnotic effect. It was a fine, large moment. Any one of them could have got him at the first shot. There was no chance of missing, and scores yearned to get him. Undoubtedly, he had attained that pitch where he yearned for them to do it. And being thus, to all intents, a dead man, save only that he retained the faculty of killing, he was mightier than all of them. Those in the front ranks were beginning to slip back. And as these escaped his presence, the others, who had become exposed to it, struggled against the pressure of their followers who would keep them in that position. Some of the cooler spirits were stealing away. The contagion of indifference spread. The mob was melting. In the meantime, one or two members of the Earp faction had procured a team and wagon. As soon as the lynchers had dispersed, they stowed the prisoner in the vehicle and set out for Tucson with a heavy guard. But there was no pursuit. The reaction which follows enthusiasm of this sort had settled down upon the miners and cowboys. Johnny behind the deuce was tried before the district court, and, as was to be expected, he was acquitted. Time went on, and dissensions came among the followers of the Earp brothers. Curly Bill and John Ringo were among the first to fall out with the leaders, and they took the path of the previous exiles to Charleston. But the country by the San Pedro was being settled up, and not long afterward they emigrated to Galeyville, over in the San Simon Valley. Thenceforth, this little smelter town became the metropolis of the outlaws. Ringo spent most of his time here with occasional trips to Tombstone, where, on more than one occasion, he dared the Earps to try to take him. They did not accept his challenges. Finally, he died by his own hand, and his friend Curly Bill left the country. In the meantime, new secessions were taking place in the Earp following. The county of Cochise had been established. Tombstone was made the county seat. Johnny Behan, an old-timer and an Indian fighter, was the first sheriff. He was hostile to the city administration from the beginning. Nor was that all. Lawyers came into town. And henceforth, 
provided a dead man's friends had money. Killing an opponent no longer settled a dispute. There remained such complications as indictment, sworn testimony, and the jury. The good old days were passing. Sheriff Johnny Behan charged the Earps with participation in robberies and willful cognizance of murders. It was about as far as he did go as a public official. The brothers issued profane and pointed defiance and went on dealing Pharaoh. About this time, Frank Stilwell quarreled with the Earps and hastily departed from Tombstone. And henceforth, until the wind-up of the ugly affairs that followed, he remained at large, awaiting his opportunity for revenge. Sheriff Behan was trying to get some good charge to bring against the brothers and various lawyers, some of them widely known throughout the Southwest, were anxiously awaiting opportunity to appear as special prosecutors when the Benson stage was held up. The Benson stage had been robbed often before, but this time the crime brought far-reaching consequences. Bud Philpotts was driver and Bob Paul, afterward United States Marshal, was shotgun messenger. There was a large currency shipment, some $80,000 in the express box. The stage was full inside, and one passenger, a Mexican, was riding on top. For some reason or other, Bob Paul had taken the reins, and Phil Potts was sitting in his place at shotgun. As the vehicle came to the top of a hill, the robbers showed themselves. The old-timers speak of the conduct of the highwaymen with profane contempt, for instead of shooting a horse or two, they opened fire on Bud Philpotts, whom they believed from his position to be the messenger, shotgun. They killed him and the Mexican passenger who was seated behind him. But the team took fright at the noise and ran away, and the $80,000 went on up the road in a cloud of dust. Johnny Behan, the sheriff, said that the Earp brothers sent Doc Holliday out with the Clanton brothers to commit the crime. Ike Clanton said that he was rustling cattle at the time down in Mexico and accused the Earps of sole responsibility. The Earps, in turn, stated that the Clanton boys were the bandits. And that began the Earp-Clanton feud. It did not last long, but there was much happening while it was going on. The Clanton brothers, Ike and Billy, betook themselves to their ranch and gathered their friends around them. Frank and Tom McLowry were prominent among these allies. And now the statement was made in Tombstone that the members of this faction had promised to shoot the Earps on sight. One October evening, Ike Clanton came into town with Tom McLowry, and Virgil Earp arrested the two on the charge of disturbing the peace. He did it on the main street and disarmed them easily enough. The Justice of the Peace, whose name was Spicer, Find the prisoners $50. The next morning, these two defendants went to the O.K. Corral on Fremont Street, where they had put up their horses the night before. And there, they met Billy Clanton and Frank McLowry. 
All four were leading their ponies out of the gate when Wyatt, Virgil, and Morgan Earp, together with Doc Holliday, confronted them. Hands up, Wyatt ordered. The shooting began at once. Holliday killed Tom McLowry, who was unarmed, at the first volley. Billy Clanton fell mortally wounded, but continued shooting up to his last gasp. Frank McLowry got a bullet through his pistol hand, but shifted his weapon to the other and kept firing until Morgan Earp, who had fallen with a ball through his shoulder, killed him where he lay. Ike Clanton jumped a high fence and fled. This was the gunfight at the OK Corral. Justice of the Peace, Spicer, held an examination and exonerated the Slayers on the ground that they had done the thing in performance of their duty as officers. But friends of the Clantons had money. Someone retained lawyers to assist in prosecuting the Earps. The sheriff saw his opportunity and became active in getting testimony. And then, while the town was seething with gossip concerning the coming trial, Frank Stilwell stole into Tombstone with a half-breed and assassinated Morgan Earp, who was playing billiards at the time. The murder accomplished, Stilwell took a fast horse and rode to Tucson. The half-breed fled to the Dragoon Mountains. The next day, the three surviving Earp brothers and Doc Holliday started for California with Morgan's body. At dusk that evening, the train reached Tucson. Now, Ike Clanton was in the town, out on bail, awaiting trial for a stage robbery. And Frank Stilwell was there. It was no more than natural that the Earps should keep a sharp lookout when the locomotive stopped at the station. Their vigilance was rewarded, Stillwell came slipping through the shadows just as the train was pulling out. The passengers in the Pullman were startled by the crackling of revolver shots from the rear platform. Directly afterward, the Earps came back inside and took their seats. And Tucson was given something to talk about that evening by the discovery of Frank Stillwell's body riddled with bullets beside the track. The Earp party held counsel in the Pullman, and determined to return to Tombstone, leaving Virgil to complete the journey with Morgan's body. And the other two brothers and Doc Holliday left the train at a way station and flagged a freight which took them back to Benson. Here they procured horses and rode to the county seat. Sheriff Johnny Behan received telegraphic advices from Tucson to arrest them. He found the trio sometime in the afternoon, they had got their effects together and sent them ahead on a wagon. They themselves on horseback, about to set forth for Colorado. Wyatt glanced down upon the sheriff as the latter came up. Listen, he said to the sheriff. Don't you even look as if you wanted to arrest us. And with that, the three rode down the main street. They passed the saloons and the gambling houses, and men came flocking to the doors to see them go by. At the running walk, the horses came on, three abreast. The faces of the riders were set. Their eyes swept the crowds on the sidewalk. They went on by. 
They turned the corner into the road that leads to the dragoons. That was the last that Tombstone ever saw of them. They stopped at Pete Spence's ranch, where the half-breed was working, who had been with Frank Stilwell on the evening of Morgan's murder. And a cowboy found the man's body the next morning. They rode across wide flats and through great dark mountain ranges eastward and north until they came into Colorado. After the departure of these bold men, outlawry took on a new lease of life in southeastern Arizona. Cattle rustling, stage robbery, and murder went on throughout Cochise County. And at last, the people found a strong man to whom the law stood for something more than a means of personal power. They chose for sheriff John Slaughter, who had been waging war for years on his own account against Apaches and bad men. But the story of how he brought the enforcement of the statutes into Tombstone is too long to tell here, although it is a stirring tale and colorful. Tombstone today stands just as it was back in those wild days of the early 80s. Just as it was, the buildings are unchanged. You may see them all and see the streets as they looked when pistols flamed and men died hard out in the roadway. But other crowds walk those streets now. And sometimes on an evening you'll see automobiles going down the block with family parties on their way for a spin along the Benson Road where the Clanton boys, Frank Stilwell, John Ringo, and the other bad men used to rob stages in daytime. On such an evening, should you travel down that highway, you may see the leaping light of a bonfire by which a group of young people are toasting marshmallows on the summit of the knoll where Ed Shifflin hid from the passing Apaches. Tombstone is peaceable enough today for any man, so peaceable that one finds it hard to believe there was a time when the town had a man or more for breakfast every morning. Well, there you go. How Tombstone got its fame. Tombstone really is a legend, and one that we would do well to remember. I think sooner or later we're going to come back and read about old John Slaughter and some of the other stories in Bechtel's book here. We got a new review This is from Mornings with Mary. Been looking for this. This is a great podcast with quality sound production. Deeper content brings a whole history to life. Saddle up for a great time. Well, thanks, Mornings with Mary. Look forward to bringing you some more. Don't forget to like us. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to write us a check. All that good stuff. Thanks for joining me. And we'll look forward to seeing you on the other side. Have a good one. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, speaking on behalf of the 1001 Stories Network. Take care, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story.